We have a lot to cover, but this is my prayer, that you don't leave the same as the way you came in. I believe God has a word for you. You're not here by accident, and I know there's a lot going on today. Uh, we've got a, a large family, four daughters. We had to get them in dresses. Uh, we're trying to potty train the youngest. There's a lot of distractions going on, a lot of families to visit, a lot of eggs to be gathered, a lot of candy to eat. But this right here, this right here is eternally life-changing. And my prayer for myself and for you is that you're more excited about what Jesus has done and is doing and will do for you and in your life than anything else this world has to offer. And today is a reminder of that. When you look out and the sun is rising, there was a day where Jesus was dead and buried and he rose from the grave. You, you don't know anybody like him. I don't know anybody like him. And that fact changes everything. And so we're going to sit right there at the foot of the cross, go to the empty tomb, and see what God has for us this morning. If you remember, a couple weeks ago, we started out with the seven cross sayings. So while on the cross, Jesus made seven statements. The first one was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. They didn't know the magnitude of the one they were nailing to the cross. They didn't realize that the creator of the universe was laying his life down. And here you see the mercy of Christ asking for forgiveness. And you see the fruit of that with the next statement. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. When the thief on the cross next to him asked for mercy and received grace. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then you see the care and love Jesus has for his mother. Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple he loves, here is your mother. Everything well taken care of. And then last week we looked at two statements, and it, it focuses more on the tragedy of the cross. In it, you have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where the wrath of the Father is poured out on sin, Jesus, being our representative, consumes the wrath of the Father over our sin and drains that cup dry. And then he utters, I am thirsty. Today we move to two statements of triumph. Two statements of triumph. The first one you see is in John chapter 19. If you're following along, go to verses 29 and 30. John chapter 19, 29 and 30. This is what we read. A jar of wine, vinegar, was there. So they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of his plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then if you'll turn back to Luke chapter 23, we'll find the final statement from the cross. Luke 23, verses 44 to 46. So after saying it is finished, we read this in Luke 23, starting with verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. A couple of things I want us to notice about these last sayings of Jesus from the cross. First off, 
It's not by accident that we read there was an isop plant that they used for the vinegar. And it should remind the reader of the Passover that they just celebrated. So it goes back to the Exodus. When God was delivering His people from slavery in Egypt, He says, hey, the last plague that we're going to send will be the death of the firstborn, but you take a lamb, dip this isop in the blood of a lamb and put it on your doorpost and put it on the lintel, put it on the frame. And when the death angel, the destroyer, sees the blood, you will be passed over. It's not by accident that that is here as Jesus, who John told us, hey, behold, the Lamb of the God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, how does he do that? He does it by shedding his own blood. And so on the cross... We see that your sin and my sin can be passed over because it's judged and covered by the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Number two, we see the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now when we read that, to you and me, that's a little bit bizarre. Here's Jesus on the cross and now all of a sudden you're talking about a curtain in a temple. Well, this is why that is very, very important. The curtain would probably cover this space. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and you don't approach it lightly back in this time. It separated the holy place from the most holy place, and only the high priest would go in there, and him only once a year during the Day of Atonement. And it was a very fearful thing to go behind the curtain. It shows that people on our own we don't approach God lightly our sin separates us from God and yet here Jesus lays his life down and the curtain is torn in two your sin and my sin has been paid for and nothing separates us from the God whom we were created for the curtain is torn in two Thirdly, Jesus gave up his spirit. I think it's important, even on the cross, Jesus is in complete control. It's a reminder earlier in John that no one takes my life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. You see, you and I don't have any control over death. We're not promised the next second. That's not the case with Jesus. Jesus willingly lays his life down, And at the end, he gives up his spirit in complete control, even as he lays his life down. But do you notice to whom he entrusts his spirit to? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In life and in death, Jesus completely trusted the Father. And I think this is a beautiful picture because we remember just a few hours ago, He stated, Father, why have you forsaken me? Showing a watching world how he is representing sin on their behalf. And now that debt has been paid in full. That cup has been completely drained dry. And now we see the Son to the Father into your hands. Commit my spirit. But this is how Jesus lived. He said, I don't do anything on my own accord. I do exactly what the Father has set out for me to do. 
And he completed the will of the Father. And as a matter of fact, in the garden, if you remember, what does he say? Not what? Not my will, but yours be done. What an awesome example Jesus has set for us. In life and in death, let us commit to living for God. May we be about His will, not our own. And then finally, it is finished. And in this context, we read just before the passage we read in verse 28 of John 19. It says, Later, knowing that everything has now been finished so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So what was finished? Everything that Jesus was called to do. Everything in the Old Testament and the prophets would say, hey, this is who's coming. Jesus fulfilled. It is finished. The Bible points to Jesus. And so this is very important as we read our Bibles. It's not a self-help book. Now, there's a lot of help for us in this, and there's a lot of wisdom to be applied in this book, but primarily the book is about Jesus. He is the hero of the text. And your salvation is found in Him. Not in your own self-help. We see this again and again in the Word. John 5, 39 says, You search Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. Jesus speaking. He said, If you believe in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Graham Goldsworthy puts it this way, All Scripture... It's about Jesus Christ, even where there is no explicit prediction. That is, there is a fullness of implication in all the scriptures that point to Christ and is satisfied only when he has come and done his work. The meaning of all scriptures is unlocked by the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a beautiful picture. Jesus fulfills the law. All the promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. Just to name some of them. In Genesis after the first couple commit sin, what does God say to them? He said, hey, there's someone coming who will crush the head of the serpent. He will bruise his heel, and he will crush his head. Well, who does that? Jesus. And he does that in the craziest way. He goes to the cross and lays his life down. Now, to you and me, that looks like that's a crushed head. Jesus is dead. That's the end. But the awesome news is that's just a bruise. Jesus goes to the grave, and the grave couldn't hold him. And he rises, delivering a crushing blow to the head of Satan. Or, maybe this, there was a promise to Abraham that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, how are we blessed by Abraham? Well, eventually, Jesus comes. And through him, all nations are blessed. When you see heaven, it's every tongue, it's every tribe. That's how that's fulfilled. Or maybe the descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky. How does that happen? Through Jesus. Or maybe to David. There's someone coming from your line whose kingdom will be forever, whose king will know no end. Well, how does a king reign forever when every king up to this point dies? Jesus. That's what it means when it is finished. Jesus has come and fulfilled the law. All the promises find their yes in him. 
and all the penalties against God's sinful people were poured out on him in the cross. That's what Jesus means when he says, it is finished. You know, uh, I'm trying to coach baseball this year. It's not going too hot. Don't ask us our record. It's not good. But we're, at, we're playing this team, and we're battling. We're up 2-1, to one, which is a minor miracle in and of itself. Second inning, pitcher's cruising. Strike one, strike two, and then he throws his fastball. Catcher catches strike three. Pitcher, you know, fist pump, starts jogging to the dugout. Catcher jumps up. He's excited, rolls the ball back to the mound. They start jogging to the dugout. Meanwhile, there's a guy on third who understands that in baseball, how many outs do you need? Three. We were so excited that we struck somebody out that after two outs, we celebrated. The ball is rolling back. The coaches are yelling, get back out there. Get back. It's only two. Meanwhile, the guy on third is just cruising in. Boom. Tied game. Not finished. Jesus doesn't have that problem. Even with everything going on, the pain of crucifixion, the wrath of the Father being poured out as a representative on our sin, he's able to look throughout the entire scope of the word and say it is finished that's our savior and so that was the the final two sayings from the cross which move us into the gospel in first corinthians 15 3 through 8 paul summarizes what we read in matthew mark luke and john in the final two chapters of each of those gospels And so there's some facts that you need to know about Jesus. Lived a perfect life and then died on the cross. A spear goes through his side and blood and water flow. He is dead. And you read that in each of the four Gospels. What happens after that? He's buried. And it's in each of the four Gospels. He's buried in a tomb. People know which tomb Jesus is buried in. They roll the stone. They put guards to watch. But three days later, he bursts out of the grave. The stone is rolled away. There's no body to be seen because he's alive. Now, here's the awesome news. He doesn't appear in a vacuum. Over 500 people see him. And just to share with you a few. In John 20, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, who was standing at the tomb crying, which is a normal thing to do if you go to a funeral. If you go to a graveside, and the beautiful thing is the crying turns into tears of joy because death isn't final when it comes to Christ. Jesus appears to the women walking to the tomb in Matthew 28. He appears to the disciples who had locked themselves in a room because they were scared. But there's one disciple who's not in that room. His name is Thomas. And he goes, guys, I don't believe you, which I think is a normal reaction. I don't know about you, but I've never seen someone that we've buried. And Thomas says, unless I see his hands and his feet, I will not believe. Well, a few days later, guess who shows back up? And he says, Thomas, come on over here. Touch my hands. Touch my feet. We keep reading. Jesus appears to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. He tells them where he can find some fish. And when they throw their nets where he tells them to throw them, they bring in a hole of fish and 
Peter recognizes, oh, this is Jesus. And if you remember Peter, Peter was the one that disowned him three times. His Lord and Savior, when it was the worst possible time, Peter was nowhere to be found. But now, he hears and recognizes the Savior. Jumps out of the boat, swims to the shore. And here's the awesome part. They broiled fish, and they ate breakfast together. It's not a ghost. It's not a hallucination. This is a real body, and it's really Jesus. But then we keep reading, and in Acts 1, he appears to over 500 people. As a matter of fact, that's what we read in 1 Corinthians. If you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, this is what we read. For I, what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. Now, when you hear Paul say this is first importance, this is what is very, very important for us to understand, for us to get. And so for me, my ears are on heightened alert when I hear that. First importance. This isn't small talk. This is very important for us to get. It's first importance. And this is what it is. That Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. That's what it meant when he says, it is finished. That's what Jesus meant. But then we keep reading that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. What Paul is saying is, hey, I know you think this sounds crazy, but you can check with all of these witnesses, most of whom are still living. Some have died, but go check with the ones that are living. Over 500. See if it's not true. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last he appeared to me also. And then we read in Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11, it says, After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Now just, just imagine if we were outside right now, Jesus is before us and he's speaking, and then he just starts ascending into heaven. I think our response would be the same that we read here. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee. They said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now that's a promise for you and me. And when you see the clouds, just imagine one day, Jesus is returning for his people. So of first importance from that text, this is what we need to know. That Jesus died according to scriptures. He's exactly who we've been waiting for. He was dead and buried. He rose from the grave. He ascended to the Father. And he is returning. Those are the facts from the cross to the empty tomb to where Jesus is right now. You serve a living God. And then that moves us into our, our last point. The finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. And we said this, it is finished. We see that it lines up with Scripture. So that he fulfilled all Scripture, he breathed this last. And carried out all that is written about him. They took him down from the cross. It is finished. What does that mean for you and me? What does that mean for you and me? Now listen, there's a lot here. 
And some of it, same coin, two different sides. But all of this is glorious to those who know Jesus. If you do not know Jesus, this is not true of you. But the good news, first importance, you can know Christ. And this is what we see. Because Jesus has finished the work on the cross, number one, we can be saved. Say, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross doesn't make sense to a watching world. There's not much power in a dead Savior. But to you and I, we know that it is through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be saved. That's the power of God. That the grave cannot stop God. That our sin has been paid for. And it's only through the cross of Jesus. That's the finished work of Christ so that you and I can be saved. Number two, not only are we saved, we are also purified. Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sin, he sat down. Why did he sit down? Because his work's finished. You cannot be any pure according to God. Because it's not based on your works. It's based on the finished work of Christ, which leads us into number three. Not only are we purified, we're also cleansed. Hebrews 9.14, it says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus is the one who cleans up our lives. It's not our own effort. You can't make yourself right enough before God. Jesus can. And the good news is it's a finished work. I'm reminded, uh, we have pinstripe baseball pants. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, I never thought I'd see the day where I'd have to wear pants, but in baseball they have their tradition where coaches have to wear the pants. One of the worst traditions out there. But these baseball pinstripe pants are super white. And I've got a Holmes t-shirt that has faded over the years. It's a white t-shirt if you see it without my pinstripe pants. But as soon as I bring these white glistening pinstripe pants, you see how dirty that t-shirt is. Now here's the point. Your life might look pretty clear, pretty clean, pretty pure compared to other people's lives. But that's not the standard. The standard is God. And compared to God, sin stains deeply. And so what we desperately need is someone else's purity, somebody else to clean up the mess. And that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How? Because he shed his blood on the cross. Sin has been paid for, covered by the blood. Number four, perfected. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies 
shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now this is great news. Because the closer people get to your life, they'll see the shortcomings. Anybody can put on a show for a Sunday morning. But ask a spouse. Ask a child. Ask a co-worker. Is so-and-so perfect? They'll laugh. But you want to know what the good news is? What we have here is that Jesus has made perfect those who are growing to be more and more like Jesus. Isn't that good news? Your perfection has been given to you because it's Jesus' perfection. Jesus can't be any more perfect. And before the Father, guess whose perfection you have? It's not yours, because we don't have it. But it's Jesus's. He has made perfect by his sacrifice for all time those who are being sanctified. That's great news. Number five, redeemed. These next two go together, redeemed and ransomed. Redeemed talks about, in Ephesians 1, 7, in him, being Jesus, we have redemption. How? Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Hebrews 9, 12 shows us how long this redemption lasts. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Eternally transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And then with ransom, you see this in Mark 10, 45. It says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know what the most expensive ransom was in the history of the world? According to Business Insider, King Richard the Lionheart had the most expensive ransom. Now, I don't know about you, but if this was the ransom for you and me, we might be in trouble. But not for King Lionheart. He was on a trip, coming back home, fell to a storm, boat had to dock, made his way all the way through Vienna. But while in Vienna, the Duke of Austria, Leopold V, captured him. And he told England, you can have him back for 150,000 marks. Now, I don't know about you. I didn't know what a mark was. Some type of currency. But, according to Business Insider, in today's equivalency, that would be $3.3 billion to get the king back. That was three times what England made in a year. But somehow they raised the money, and in a year, less than a year, they paid the ransom, got the king back. $3.3 billion. Now, you might expect a high ransom for a king, but guess what the price was to ransom you and to ransom me? It was much more than $3.3 billion. It was God's son coming and laying down his life. What is more valuable than the life of Christ? And Jesus says, hey, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You don't have to stay in your sin. You don't have to stay in your shame, in your guilt. That's exactly why Jesus came. The price has been paid, and it was expensive. But that's exactly why Jesus came. 
to lay his life down as a ransom for many. Next, forgiven. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Done. It's finished. Number eight, victorious. Colossians 2, 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, this is very important. There's a movie, and for whatever reason, whenever I look up, the ad is coming out. It's uh, Russell Crowe, The Pope's Exorcist. And I'm thinking, man, that's pretty scary if you've seen it. And if you haven't, if you see it, you'll see what I'm saying. But what we see here is for those in Christ, we have nothing to fear. Because Jesus, when he went to the cross, disarmed the powers and authorities, made public spectacle of them, and triumphed over them in the cross. And if you're in Christ, you too have victory. You see that in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And Jesus said, it is finished. Number 9 and number 10 go together, justified and no condemnation. Romans 5, 9 speaks of justification. Since you have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Think about that. Justified before God. So one day, you and I will stand before God, judgment day, and he'll say, come in, because we're completely justified. And now, don't be confused. It's not because you did something. Why is it because? Why have we been justified? Because of the finished work of Christ. Because of what Jesus has done. That is good news. Romans 3, 24, and all are justified by his grace. That means we didn't earn it. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you know Christ, when you approach God, you're not condemned. Because Jesus was condemned. That's the work he finished on the cross. Romans 8.34 drives this point home. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I don't know who you have in your life that has your back. There's a couple of people in my life that I know, no matter what, has my back. But that's nothing compared to that verse. Who is interceding for us? Jesus. No condemnation. Next, reconciled. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about your worst enemy. Someone you can't stand. It might be a boss. Hopefully it's not a spouse. But it's your worst enemy. Somebody you don't get along with. You see, on our own, we're not okay before God. Jesus is not your homeboy. You're at odds with God. We've rebelled against God. And yet, what does Jesus do? While we were still sinners, He dies for us. Romans 5.10 puts it this way, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? So the hostility that was between God and you, God and me, was reconciled through the work of Christ. This is an awesome truth to think about. If you have an anxious heart, right here is where you need to sit. 
Because of the finished work of Jesus, those in Christ have been brought near. 1 Peter 3.18 puts it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Ephesians 2.13 puts it this way, But now in Christ Jesus you were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God is near to those who are in Christ. Number 13, confidence. Confidence. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We used to not be able to go behind the curtain. That curtain's torn in two. Now, because of Christ, we approach God through prayer with confidence. We know that He hears us because of the finished work of Christ. I think one way that I heard this, a pastor once gave an example. We don't really understand the finished work of Christ because he goes, when you mess up, you feel like you have to clean yourself up before you can get back right with God. And he says, when you do that, when you mess up and you hesitate to go to God, well, I can't go to church, I can't pray, I can't do this until I do this, this, and this. He says, when you do that, you're not relying on the finished work of Jesus. You're relying on your own righteousness, and that will never satisfy if when you mess up, and we will mess up, the next inclination is to run to Christ, you begin to grasp what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. It's his finished work that gives us confidence before God. Number 14, be sanctified, purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Hebrews 13, 12, it says, And so Jesus suffered outside the city to make people holy through his own blood. You're a new creation in Christ. He gives you new desires, gives you a new heart, and He will complete what He started in your life. Number 15, eternal life, which goes back to the first one, salvation. John 3, 16, you see this at a lot of ball games, but I hope you know this, and I hope it's true for you this morning. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life life and then this passage you hear at funerals especially and primarily and should be only for those who are in Christ you hear this word of comfort 1 Corinthians 15 54 to 56 death has been swallowed up in victory where O death is your victory where O death is your sting sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ and this is our hope this is our hope. So I have uh, grandparents, 91 and 89. Health is beginning to fail, still strong, still making it, but you can see the frailty of life. But this is the good news, and this is what my grandpa clings to. He says, Ben, the same God who raised Jesus from the grave will one day raise me from the grave. That's what you get in Romans. It says, The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the grave will one day raise your earthly body. You get new bodies. And as soon as you breathe your last, those in Christ, your spirit goes to be with God forever and ever and ever. Why? Because of the finished work of Jesus. That's how we get eternal life. And then the last part is purpose. Why on earth are you here? And how does the cross have anything to do with that? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? 
whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What was that price we were bought with? The blood of Christ. His life laid down for us. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Hebrews 12.1-3 And I think this is for those who are tired. Those who have been walking with Christ for a while and you're starting to slow down. Your pace has slowed. Your joy is fading. This is for you. Hebrews 12.1-3 Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. All right, so what are we doing? We're looking to Jesus, and what about Jesus? The founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep running your race. And you're not finished until you're in the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5.15 puts it this way. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Are you living for Jesus this morning? That's how the finished work of Christ takes hold of our hearts. Galatians 2.20 is one of those verses that would be good to have memorized. If you're taking notes, if you have your phones, write that in Galatians 2.20. And this is what we read. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'll leave you with, with this little illustration. And I was, I was sharing it with Ava. Ava's a junior out at Connor. And so I tried to run illustrations by her. And I just asked her, what's the most expensive piece of art out there? And she said, the Mona Lisa. And I was glad because that's where this illustration was hidden. And I asked her, how much do you think the Mona Lisa's worth? So just think in your head, how much do you think the Mona Lisa is worth? Insurance covers it and according to the Guinness World Record books it's the highest valued piece of art in history at 2.5 billion dollars and Ava told me dad that's ridiculous I can paint something just about as good and I'd sell it to you for a million (laughs) Uh, similar yet different so Mona Lisa painted by Leonardo da Vinci not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, but the painter, the artist in the 1500s. 30 inches tall, 21 inches wide, weighs about 18 pounds. And let's say the museum said, you know what, Redemption Church at Ashton Avenue, you can show your members this piece of art. And let's say, does anybody have any art background in the room? All right, I'll volunteer. I've had an art class. I was with Miss Pennington in sixth grade. I painted some stuff. And I come up and look at the Mona Lisa, and I notice, you know what? Those eyebrows aren't as dark as they should be. And I said, just hold up. I'll be right back. I get my paintbrush, get my paint, and put on some eyebrows. Does that help or hurt that piece of art? Anything I add destroys the finished work of Leonardo da Vinci. And now the same is true of our salvation. 
Jesus said, it is finished. The work of salvation is completed. You and I cannot add to it. Now, the Mona Lisa does not change my life one bit. I'm not traveling to Europe to go look at it. Doesn't impact. Other than this illustration, I don't think too much about the Mona Lisa. But there is another completed work done by Christ who does impact my life. And it's infinitely more valuable than $2.5 billion. I promise you this. All the money in the world won't matter to you in 100 years. But what Jesus did on the cross, what he completed, your sin, my sin paid for, that can change your eternity. And in 100 years, that's nothing compared to the thousands and thousands and thousands of being in his presence. And so here's the call. And we're going to sing a hymn, but this is what I want to encourage you to do. I don't know where you are spiritually this morning, but I do know this, you're not here by accident. If you have never trusted in the finished work of Christ to save you, you can do that today. You can do that just sitting where you are, standing where you are. If you want somebody to pray with you, you can. But talk to God. Ask Him to forgive you. Trust in what Jesus has done in His death, burial, and resurrection. And God will hear you and save you from your sin. And maybe you're here. You know Jesus. This is your 50th Easter. You know all of the stats and the facts, but your heart's grown cold. Ask God to wake you up. Live for Him. Finish the race that's marked out for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Lord, there are so many things going on, but I do know that you're here with us. And I pray for your spirit to move and convict us of what you're calling us to do. I pray for boldness to make that decision. Father, I pray that you move in a mighty way. Help us glorify you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.